The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Well, I want to welcome you guys. It's good to have you. So Snowbird has been, uh, we've been in existence since 1997. And uh, the Lord gave us a vision for the camp in 1995, a year that none of y'all remember, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's been around a long time now. And uh, I remember in the year 2000, uh, when it was New Year's Eve from 99 going into 2000, there was this global scare called Y2K. And people thought that all the computers in the world were going to crash and the world was going to like descend into chaos and anarchy and insanity. And apparently we waited till 2020 to do that. So it happened. It just didn't happen uh, in 99. And one of the things that's been uh, troubling to my spirit and my soul over the last few months is the the move away from historic and traditional tenets of Christianity by the millennial generation and the subsequent generation. There's this huge shift away from historic Christianity. And so what we're seeing is something that's unprecedented in modern history, which is rather than people abandoning the biblical teaching of the gospel, rather than people abandoning biblical authority, in the sense of recognizing that there's one true God, recognizing that Jesus is that God in the flesh, recognizing that the words of Christ were authoritative, rather than people just walking away and walking into atheism, uh, Darwinian evolution, agnosticism, or other pagan ideologies, people are trying to take historic Christianity, push it aside, maintain association with Jesus, and then marry this new association to far, far, far progressive worldly ideology. In other words, we're trying to secularize Christianity. But Jesus reminds us throughout the Gospels and throughout his teachings that we are not of this world. We will never find peace in this world Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And this confuses us because we've seen our spiritual ancestors in America bring a sword to matters where there's no business bringing a sword. They've created conflict where we shouldn't have created conflict. They've created odds with the world at times where we should have loved the world. They've promoted racism. They've condemned people for their sexuality. They've assaulted unregenerate people who are living in bondage and slavery to sin rather than shining the hope that is in us, namely the hope of the gospel, into that dark world and giving them hope. And so what we've done is we've separated ourselves from the world ideologically rather than loving the world with the gospel of Jesus while calling them to repent unapologetically. And so what we've seen over the last few years that breaks my heart is that over a thousand college-age people have served on staff at Snowbird Outfitters in the last 20-plus years. And over, I don't know the percentage, but over the last five years, there's been a mass shift from those that we have labored alongside of 
who have walked away from the beliefs and teachings of historic Christianity and embraced secular ideology redefining Christianity, saying things like, you have to either choose Jesus or the Bible because we can't take the Bible and apply it to modern culture. It's misogynistic. It's xenophobic. It's homophobic. It's hateful. It's contemptuous towards people that don't have a choice over their circumstances and conditions. But we can embrace Jesus because he shows us what love looks like. He examples for us what kindness and compassion and social justice looks like. And they separate the God of the Bible with their version of Jesus, and we don't have the authority to do that. Remember C.S. Lewis saying Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic, right? He is who he says he is or he isn't who he claimed to be. We cannot come up with a hybrid version where Jesus is who we want him to be, able to save us, able to help us, able to encourage us, but then reject the teachings of passages like John chapter 6 where Jesus says, either you drink my blood and eat my flesh or you're not of me. And you're living your formative adult years in a day and age where historic Christian principles are being abandoned and re-described as hateful, contemptuous, and identified as the enemy to this new false gospel that is no gospel at all. And you have to determine, as young men and young women, who you're going to stand for, what you're going to stand for. My favorite country song of the 1990s was by a guy from South Carolina named Aaron Tippin, whose career went about like this. You ready for it? Boom, boom, like that, okay? Boom, boom, all right? But it was legit country music. This garbage y'all listen to today, this hip-hop meets country. Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard are rolling over in their proverbial graves. You need to abandon that just like you abandoned this new gospel. Okay, I'm just, just kidding. That's, that's an exaggeration, all right? But Aaron Tippin said this, you have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And I remember thinking, oh, man, that's some good. I'm, you know, spitting Copenhagen and riding around in my truck thinking that's some good stuff right there. But I'm going to tell you something. We are facing a crossroads and a crisis where historic Christianity under attack and under assault, we have to determine what we're going to stand for or we'll fall for what the writers of the New Testament call every wind and wave of doctrine. You You need to know who you believe in, and what you believe. And so we're going to look at the life of uh, Daniel, particularly in Daniel chapter 1. Now, when we see Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced to the people of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the Israelites, at a time where they're in exile. They're being carried into exile. Now, there was a prophet named Jeremiah who had a vision from God, and in that vision, uh, Jeremiah sees two baskets, okay, sees two baskets. Each are filled with figs. We don't, we don't, we're not fig people. We're like fig Newtons. That's about it, I think. Uh, but figs were, were, were a, a, a popular fruit in that part of the world. Two baskets filled with figs. One has good and healthy figs. The other has rotten, bad figs. And he says, Israel is like this basket of good figs, the people of Judah. You're going to be carried into exile. You're going to be enslaved, and it's going to feel like God has turned against you. You're going to be carried into exile and slavery and dominion of a secular world power 
who wants to destroy your belief in Yahweh, the one true God, who wants to redefine truth for you, who wants to reassign gender for you, who wants to re-educate you so that you forget the God of your fathers and you embrace the God of this age. But know this, the God who saved you, who brought you out of Egypt, Yahweh, your Savior, is going into exile with you. You will not be alone. And he will preserve for himself a remnant. And there's this beautiful, powerful biblical truth that no matter what happens in 21st century America, in 21st century Western Europe, the God of the Bible, whose name is Jesus, who died on Calvary's cross in my place, who took my sin onto himself, and who buried it with sin and death and hell in the grave and came back victoriously in bodily resurrection, that God has not forsaken us. He's walking through what Peter calls our period of exile with us. And he will preserve for himself a remnant of faithful men and women. And the question for you this morning is, will you be numbered among the faithful? Will you be numbered among the faithful? We pick the story up. In Daniel chapter 1, it says this, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, when we see the word Babylon in Scripture, from the very beginning of, of the Bible, the word Babylon is associated with God's judgment, it's seen as wicked, but it's also seen as this specific place in the book of Daniel that becomes sort of this general idea that refers to the world. So throughout scripture, Babylon is sort of a picture of the world. So we'll see it many centuries later in the revelation of God to John in the book of Revelation, Babylon represents the world under the control and rule of Satan and demonic powers. So Babylon is specific to Daniel. It's also specific to us in that it's the spirit of this age. So it's a place, but it's often associated with the world under the influence of Satan. Babylon is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, where a man named Nimrod is introduced. Nimrod is the father of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, and he's a powerful man who establishes the kingdom of Babel in the land of Shinar. Now, if you look in our first two verses, we see the land of Shinar. Shinar is the place where the story of the Tower of Babel takes place. And the Tower of Babel is this attempt by early historic man to build a tower that reaches them up into the heavens where they can take the position of God and look down condescendingly on the people of the earth. Okay, so, so it's a very demonic activity. Make a note of this because it's very important. The building of the Tower of Babel is where we know that an act of arrogance and defiance against which God judges all of humanity occurs. Now, there's a really important biblical principle that comes into play at the first scene at Babel. When we read about Nimrod, the world celebrates him for his power and strength. You go back to Genesis 10, you read about Nimrod, and it's like he's a mighty man, a great hunter. You read about as a dude, as a definitively male person, Nimrod, you read about Nimrod, and you're like, that guy, that's my guy right there. Just like when you read about Esau and Jacob, fellas, you ever read that, and you're like, Esau's my guy. And then you're like, you see where he goes, and then you're like, oh, okay, no, not my guy, but Jacob, crocheting. Jacob's on Pinterest. Jacob's taking selfies. 
Jacob is shopping at Target and the Starbucks in Target. He's getting something other than a cup of black coffee while he's there. You know, like, I don't want to. So what happens is we begin to associate with characters like Nimrod and Esau. And we say, oh, yeah, this is what the world celebrates in one sense. So Nimrod represents that which mankind will celebrate, but that which is opposed to Yahweh God. At Babel, the people and descendants of Nimrod are humbled and scattered by the Lord. And in the book of Revelation, Babylon repeatedly appears and represents the rebellious people of the earth under the leadership and influence of demonic and satanic forces. So as the book of Daniel opens, Babylon is in power. A quick study of history shows us that Babylon had been in power for only a few years. In fact, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, sort of swept up the, the inhabitants of Judah while he was on an invasion of other lands. And he's kind of coming back home and he sweeps them up and he takes these exiles from Judah. But in Daniel chapter 1, three times, and we see it for the first time in chapter in verse 2, three times the scripture says the Lord gave or God gave or Yahweh gave. And so in verses 1, 9, and 17 of this chapter, there's this underlying reminder that even in slavery and exile, God is in control. God gave the people over to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Daniel favor. God gave, God gave, God gave, and so God is in control even in exile. Through Jeremiah's teaching, God uh, instructs the people in Babylon to marry, to get jobs, to be educated, to go about their lives with God's blessing, much like he would tell us, don't hole up in a bunker somewhere out in the Northwest Territories and buy a bunch of that 30-year canned food and put your tinfoil hat on and wait for the impending doom that's coming as a prepper. Let's link. No, he says, no, get jobs, be educated, raise families. You're in Babylon and I'm with you in Babylon, just like we are in a fallen world, but God is with us in this fallen world. So we need godly police officers and nurses and factory workers and men and women who teach in institutions of higher learning and in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools. We need godly pastors. We need godly missionaries. We need godly truck drivers. We need men and women who are living in Babylon, impacting the world that they live in. And he promises them, I'll be with you. Now, we know from these two verses that judgment has come to Judah from the Lord. In 2 Kings 20, a king named Hezekiah, who was a king of Judah about 100 years before this story, boasted to a group of Babylonians about all of the possessions that he had in the temple treasury. So there's this guy, Hezekiah. He's in power in Judah, and he brings these Babylonian dignitaries in. This is before the Babylonians are in power. And he shows them all the storehouse and all of his treasures. And he's like, look what God has given us. Look what we have. And he brags and boasts about it in this prophecy comes up to him and says, you're boasting in that which you have no authority to boast in. God's going to give your people into the hands of the Babylonians. So there's this prophecy that God's going to bring judgment because of Hezekiah's arrogance. So we're seeing that played out. You'll often see this in scripture where a prophecy is made, a prophecy is fulfilled, and people that reject the authority of the scripture will say, well, that was tampered with. But if you do an in-depth study of how we got the Bible as we have it, what you will find is the critical texts of scripture stand firm when no other secular writing stands firm. Particularly if you study the Dead Sea Scrolls, you will find passages of scripture that were written hundreds of years before the time of Christ that were preserved into the time of Christ that weren't discovered until 1947. So we have thousands of years of Scripture preserved that we can measure our Bible texts against to find that they're 100% accurate. God has preserved His Word and His prophecies. So when God says something's going to happen, y'all, it's going to happen. And He told Hezekiah, the Babylonians are going to invade. 
You're not going to see it. It's not going to be in your lifetime, but they're going to carry your descendants into exile. In fact, they're going to kill many of your descendants. Verses 3 through 7, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief of eunuchs, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You guys might know them as Rack, Shack, and Benny. Know that story? It's, it's, it's not accurate, okay? So let's stick with this one. Now, to understand what's going on in these verses, uh, let me give some clarity. So most of the gifted young men were carried away to Babylon from their home city of Jerusalem. This is about a 700-mile trek. So they walk about 700 miles to go to Babylon. Daniel and his friends are named among them. As young men, teenagers most likely, they have been trained in the legal and seminary school system under King Josiah in Judah. So the predecessor to this king in Judah was a guy named Josiah who led major reform. Daniel and his, his brothers would have been trained and equipped under the legal system that King Josiah had um, instituted. This means that from a young age, they were selected because they were very competent and mature and gifted. It was common practice in ancient times that the Babylonians would work to assimilate the people they conquered. They were much more strategic and advanced than previous empires. This was different than their predecessors, the Assyrians, who had a scorched earth approach to how they conquered people. The Syrians would rape and pillage and burn and then move on. The Babylonians wanted to expand their kingdom, their empire. They wanted to not only do it physically, but ideologically and religiously, so they wanted to assimilate people into their empire. Do you see what I'm saying there? The Assyrians, which was the, the successive, the, the, the empire that was the predecessor to the Babylonian empire, the Assyrians were barbaric, man. They'd come in, they'd raid a people, they'd rape, pillage, burn, they would use up the resources, scorched earth, they'd move on. The Bible calls them, they're like a swarm or a herd of locusts. The Babylonians were much more ideological. They come in, they take all of those people who were less gifted, less academic, less talented, they turn them into a slave labor force. That would have been my plight. I'd have been like chipping rocks with a hammer, right? But then the gifted people, those of you that are going to graduate with mess hanging around your neck other than just the the community college robe that I got to wear, like, okay, like, like those of you that are going to be, you know what I'm saying, like gifted those that might become doctors or attorneys or specifically philosophers or religious leaders would be assimilated and, watch this, re-educated. They're going to re-educate them. Why? Because they want to merge the cultures and make the world Babylonian. They want to they assimilate the world into Babylon. This is real common practice. Now, the fact that repeatedly in chapter 1, on multiple, multiple times, uh, over, over half a dozen times, I believe, the chief of eunuchs is in charge of Daniel and his men. This implies that these young men would have been castrated before they were removed from Jerusalem in 
and exiled in Babylon. Castration would have meant they were erased from the lineage of their people. It was as if they were erasing their Jewish identity and heritage and reassigning them gender and reassigning them Babylonian heritage. The contextual parallel for us is glaring. They had been physically removed from their families and now they were biologically being removed from history. The spirit of Babylon goes against the spirit of God. God is raising up a people for himself through whom he will bless the entire world, but he's doing it in exile. This is the Old Testament story of the Jews. God is raising up a nation through whom, through whom he will bring a particular lineage that will bring the Messiah into this world. What is happening to these boys? This is the reverse effect of conversion and symbolic baptism in the Christian faith. Whereas we are buried with Christ in baptism, we're raised to walk in newness of life. The Bible says we are new creations and the old is gone and that man is now spiritually and symbolically dead and I'm a new creation through Christ the spirit of Babylon Satan who is called in the scripture the God of this age wants to reverse the plan of redemption wants to reverse the message of the gospel he wants to deconstruct and destroy what God has established and in your generation he's doing it through a sexual revolution where that which God abhors is being celebrated in Daniel's day it didn't look that much different We're living in a time where everything ordained by God is under attack from the world. The world has always been broken and dark ever since the fall of man. But what we are experiencing in this generation is an ideological attack. Babylon celebrates that which breaks the heart of God. Think of this in terms of Babylon. God creates man and woman, male and female, and gives purpose and definition to marriage and sexuality. Babylon says this is oppressive and bigoted. Babylon celebrates gender reassignment as heroic. Babylon celebrates coming out of the closet as brave. Babylon celebrates an all-inclusive embrace of pagan ideologies and worldly religions in the name of tolerance. And yet they ridicule and mock and oppress and punish and call out and cancel those who trust in the name of the Lord our God, Jesus Christ, and who believe in and submit to the authority of God's word. What God calls good, Babylon calls evil. And Babylon celebrates as good that which the Lord our God hates and that which Jesus Christ died to rescue us from. Babylon calls pornography freedom of expression and celebrates it as art while the Lord calls it debauchery and warns of the enslaving effects of it. Babylon celebrates the idiotic and obscene and absurd theories of Darwinian evolution, which, by the way, have never and will never be proven scientific or scientific fact, regardless of what you're told in the halls of academia, a cursory cursory review and study of scientific fact based on the collection of data reveals that we have no fact at all and we're left with nothing more than theory when it comes to evolution. But they will celebrate that while ridiculing the idea of an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator who spoke all things into existence, a creator who upholds them by the word of his power according to Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. Babylon champions the rewriting of history regardless of the laws, of the lies. Babylon celebrates the narrative while rejecting the meta-narrative and redemptive story laid out for us in the sufficient and authoritative word of God. Babylon paints with a broad brush a picture of mankind that celebrates that which is sinful and condemns that which God came to redeem and recreate. Babylon calls slavery to sin freedom, and freedom in Christ it calls slavery and bondage. 
Ladies and gentlemen, if Daniel and his brother experienced exile in a foreign land, rest assured we are experiencing similar types of exile, namely one of ideology. But know this, that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Babylon will never rob us of our strength. Those who walk in truth will remain upright and just. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the kingdoms of the earth will rise and fall. But the word of our Lord will remain forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the hope that we have. These young men are re-educated and brainwashed at the University of Babylon. So they, they make this 700-mile trek. They've been emasculated, castrated, family lineage erased, new identity assigned. Their names, which reflect the worship of Yahweh, are removed. And new names that tag them with pagan deities are reassigned. They have new names. They have new gender reassignment. And now they get to Babylon, and they're going to be reeducated at the University of Babylon. And the idea is this. Erase their language erase their education, re-educate them for three years at the University of Babylon where they become Babylonian. They become Babylonian. The idea is always that you become Babylonian, that you become worldly. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that when we enter the gate to the narrow path, that that gate is narrow. And Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that when we walk through that gate, what we leave behind because it will not fit through the gate with us and it will not fit on the narrow path. What we leave behind is worldliness, that which the world offers, and self. Because when we walk the narrow path, we walk with Jesus. And the world will never accept Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 15, they hate me, they're going to hate you. So they're going to re-educate and brainwash these young men at the University of Babylon. They're given names that reject Yahweh and reflect service to the pagan gods of Babylon. They're brought into the king's service, and watch this. They're celebrated in their new identity. The world will promise you things that appeal to your flesh. Imagine the scene when they walked into the king's banqueting table. They've walked 700 miles. They're, they're, they're completely emasculated. Their family is cut off, and their lineage has been removed. And they walk into the king's banqueting hall where before them is a feasting table unlike anything they've ever seen. They've just walked 700 miles on MREs and ramen noodles. You know, they just, they just walked 700 miles eating on a college student's budget. Amen? <laughs> like, like, they get excited about Taco Tuesday because that's better than ribeye, like, when you're in college, right? Like, that's as good as it gets. Like, this is a good day. They've just endured that, and now they're brought into the banqueting table of the king, and they are celebrated, Because Babylon will always celebrate a deconstruction of those who worship and follow Yahweh to embrace the ideologies and philosophies of Babylon. And this is alluring. This is tempting. When the world approves, it's tempting. When someone deconstructs in the Christian world, you take a Christian celebrity who deconstructs, maybe a CCM artist, maybe maybe a pastor, preacher, author, and they deconstruct and they say, I no longer believe what the scripture teaches about who God is. I want to follow this new way of doing things. They're celebrated. And it feels good to be celebrated, right? It feels good to be exalted for your bravery. And so they're brought in and put before them is perhaps the greatest temptation they've ever seen. There's 
food like they couldn't imagine. Don't miss what's happening here. The Babylonians are working to assimilate the exiles physically, ideologically, and religiously into their culture. This is exactly what we're seeing occur in America and in the West today. The danger that most of you face is not the danger of becoming Muslim or Buddhist or even a secular humanist. The danger is embracing a new brand of Christianity that is not Christianity at all. The danger that you face is an ideological brainwashing that promises that if you embrace the spirit of Babylon in this new age, you will live at peace with the world. Only this is not the world we were created for. We are exiles here. The Christ follower will never be at peace with this world. We can live at peace in this world, but never with it. Jesus said, I did not come to bring that kind of peace. I came to bring a sword. This rise in progressive Christianity that embraces far-left ideology of a new moral and sexual revolution that rejects all that Jesus died to establish. And the scary thing is that Christians are abandoning the historic beliefs of our God and His Word, trying to recreate and reimagine a secular vision and a secular version of Christianity and the gospel. In the Soviet Union, they shot and starved and beheaded Christians. In countries that operate under Sharia law, they will crucify or burn you in the streets. In America, they won't your mind. They want your affection. The spirit of Babylon wants you to love what God hates, wants you to celebrate what Jesus Christ died to set us free from. They'll tell you that the Bible is outdated and it's not literally the word of God, but that Jesus shown us the supreme earthly example of how to live and love and be inclusive and embrace what God calls sin. Brian McLaren recently said the word of God has sort of got to be handled like like archaeology, every generation, we've got to peel back a few more layers so that we contextualize it to the culture we live in because Jesus wasn't speaking in those days. The apostles weren't writing in those days to modern America or the modern West, so we have to rip it up and contextualize it. This is a dilution, a, di- a dilution and perversion of the Word of God, and we must reject it, and we will reject it. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe in you. We believe in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is the spirit of the living God inside each one of us who professes faith in Jesus than the spirit of Babylon who is the prince and power of the air who is at work in the hearts and minds of people who is at work driving worldly governments, controlling like puppets, presidents and prime ministers and dictators and congressmen and congresswomen and mayors and senators. Greater than the puppeteers in the halls of our university. Greater is the spirit of Yahweh in the hearts and minds and mouths of those who faithfully stand in the pulpits of our churches and preach the gospel than the God of this age, the spirit of Babylon, who is loosing the tongues of false teachers and woke preachers who are amassing huge followings of those who would prefer to have their ears tickled, their souls teased, and their consciences appeased. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the spirit of Babylon. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That's as far as we're going to go in the text. Listen to this. In verse 8, Daniel resolved not to eat the king's food. And in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of man and God. People will debate why he didn't eat the food. People have promoted certain dietary plans based on this 
30 days at the beginning of every year, you should just eat lettuce. I have never ascribed to that. I prefer to ascribe to Peter's vision in the book of Acts, whereby we get to eat bacon, sausage, cheeseburgers, pizza with like lots of meat on it. That's what I ascribe to, okay? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the salad. Okay, so uh, like, <laughs> so, so there's this, there's this, a lot of times there's misinterpretation of scripture. So people be like, oh yeah, man, see Daniel and them, they're vegetarians. So see, that's straight up. We got to be vegan. It's not what it's about, man. Don't, don't project something into scripture that's not there, right? So what he's, what he's showing, and there's, we don't know why this was where Daniel took his stand. We don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it was because this was something he could control. Everything in his life right now is under the thumb and the control of the, the oppressor. Maybe that's what, maybe it gave him an opportunity because he says to the chief of eunuchs, because later the guy says, man, you can't do that if you guys lose weight. Because Babylon, th- there are some benefits to living in Babylon. Like chubby is good, okay? Like we want to go there. That's good. Donuts, good. Like, like, like fatten those boys up. No, they're going to get skinny. If they get skinny, I'm going to lose my job. He's freaking out. Daniel says to him, trust the Lord. Let, just let us go through these several days, and let's see what happens. So, some commentators say maybe because in Jewish culture, sitting down to a meal was always something that accompanied the ratifying of a covenant. So to sit down and have a meal maybe was to embrace this new identity. I don't know. That's a possibility. It, it, we don't know. It could have been that the meat was meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. We don't know. But what we do know is that it's a bigger symbolic act of Daniel resolving not to go the way of Babylon. He's 16, 17 years old, y'all. He resolves. Two important principles and applications before we move into the conclusion is this. In Daniel chapter 1 and in Daniel's life, there's two principles and application that are meaningful for us that we got to walk away with. One is this. God is sovereign and always has a plan. God is sovereign and always has a plan. When it looks like all hope is lost, our hope rests in Christ. Y'all growing up in crazy times, man. It freaks me out to think about my descendants and the world that we're going to leave them. You're growing up. You're going to become husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and pastors and leaders and small group leaders at a time where the pressure is greater than it's ever been in the modern era to abandon the biblical teachings laid out for us. But God is sovereign and he has a plan. It seems hopeless to these exiles. And then they have Jeremiah's prophecy. And they're reminded of God's sovereignty. God has a plan. He's here with you in this exile. The second principle and observation is this. We must resolve to live with conviction. Live with conviction. What conviction? What what guides that conviction? What steers that conviction? The Word of God. The Holy Spirit in your life. The disciplines of a a godly man or woman. That I spend time in the Word. Time in prayer. That I approach the Word of God and submit to it that I recognize the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, live with conviction and have those convictions guided by and informed by the Word of God. Verse 21, the last verse of the chapter, it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of the king of Cyrus. Why is that significant? Because that's 70 years later. You know what happened 70 years later? King Cyrus was Persian. And the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. You know what the statement is? 
Daniel resolved to be faithful to Yahweh, trusting that Yahweh had a plan, and Daniel outlasted Babylon. It's a powerful picture of life in Christ. We will outlast Babylon. We are eternal, and this world is not our home. we got to live here, but we live here knowing that this is a temporal existence. Let's be among those who are resolved and faithful to outlast the God of this age in our lifetimes. The Scripture says that we are exiles in this world. Literally, we are living in exile as the promised and covenant people of God. And there's a principle in Scripture that trial and tribulation only strengthens the faith of the true Christ follower. So if you're nervous or worried or scared about what it's like to live in an increasingly hostile to the Word of God world, know this. We will endure to the end. Who put our faith in Jesus and fix our eyes on Jesus, we will endure to the end. Those who turn away, those who become woke, or embrace secular ideology in place of the gospel. Those who deconstruct never had true faith to begin with. We will be strengthened, not weakened, by the difficulties of life in this world. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, but we are not of those who shrink back. By keeping our eyes on Jesus, remaining true and faithful to his word and obedience and submission and worship, and by rejecting the lies of the enemy, we will remain faithful. We will not shrink back. Thanks be to God.